If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. That's what election day is all about. The biggest gun we got is called the ballot box. So if you don't like who's in there, vote them out, sings Willie Nelson. We here at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Dee Prickley-Osco, agrees. You and I are the voters. If we don't like who's running the show, we can vote them out in general elections just around the corner. Folks, you are listening to Solutions to Violence, and we're glad you are joining us on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Dolores Pregliasco, the Vice President of the Kentucky League of Women Voters. Dee Pregliasco was the keynote speaker at the October 20th, 2022 Third Thursday Lunch Event. The Third Thursday Lunch Event is sponsored by the Lovell Fellowship of Reconciliation and Swords of Justice. We want to thank the Lovell Fellowship of Reconciliation and Swords of Justice for sponsoring the Third Thursday Lunch featuring Dee Pregliasco, and we want to thank Rody Streeter for his technical assistance. Dave Pregliasco is a retired attorney and current mediator. She is a former prosecutor and district judge and adjunct professor at the University of Lowell Brandeis School of Law. Dolores Pregliasco is in her second term as president of the Louisville League of Women Voters and now vice president of the Kentucky League of Women Voters. Dee has delivered speeches in cities across the state and is a strong advocate for an advisory commission of citizens that would make recommendations to legislatures as to how the district boundaries should be redrawn. The League of Women Voters have sponsored 13 election forms in Louisville for mayor oil, school board, metro council, legislative, and third congressional district races. Dee is married with two grown children and two grandchildren. The League of Women Voters is a bipartisan organization neither Democrat, Republican, nor Independent. Dee Pergliosco, welcome to Source of Justice, the Liberal Fellowship of Reconciliations, Third Thursday Lunch, and the Solutions of Balance. Thank you so much. I appreciate your inviting me. I love to talk to this group. I would say open all questions or I'll answer as many as I can. Let me say this, use the word bipartisan. We like to use the word nonpartisan for the league because we don't support parties or candidates, but we support issues. And I'm glad you mentioned about the various forums. We have three left on Saturday night with WLKY. There will be a mayoral forum from eight to nine, and that will be replayed on Sunday. I'm not sure of the exact time Sunday, but I think it'll be, be announced and you'll be able to find out. And then on November the 4th, the league and WLKY will have a forum on the third congressional district. And that's from 12.30 to 1.30 on the 4th. And that'll be replayed the next day. And again, I don't know the exact time the next day. And then we have one more forum on Monday at the, I'll have to look, I can't remember if it's the South Central Library or the other library, I'll, I'll double check that. And that is for the, for the school board number five district, and then also for two house districts. And that, that will be the last one of those uh, that, that we have. And you can find out some of these we have been able to be live streamed. Some of these we've been able to have recorded and put on. I will tell you one of my goals as uh, the president of the league, the local league again, is to sort of make sure our communication and tech abilities are up to date and in the 21st century. And we're still working on that. But hopefully you can see some of these forums uh, that we have. And then I would tell you that on the 21st of November, 
we will have our, our regular third uh, Monday program, Democracy in Action. And it will be all about voting and all about the amendments throughout our history, sort of a sort of a review of everything, because it doesn't matter that the election is over November the 8th. Let's face it, voting we know is something that we need to pay attention to all year long, every year. And there'll be a governor's uh, race next year, as well as the other constitutional officers. So we need to we need to pay attention to all of those things. And then, of course, let's face it, 2024 will be here before we know it. And we're talking about more uh, elections. So anyway, Professor Enid Trucios Haynes from the law school, from the Brandeis School of Law at UofL will be there on the 21st. And again, we're open. It's open to the public. You're welcome to come. Please come. And part of what I'm striving for with what she's going to talk about is that we have a good understanding of voting issues throughout our history and to help students and people all over understand how important voting is, you know, not just that it's something, oh, well, it comes up every once in a while, but how it affects our daily life. And that's what's really, really critical. So Jim has given me a list of things to, to talk about. And so I will talk about them briefly. Obviously, I could talk about all of them for an hour each. Uh, but I want you to be sure that you do ask questions, and I want to make sure that there's clarity for any of these things. And, and if I don't know the answer, we'll try to find out and get back to you. All right, uh, voting regulations, which is really critical. And Jim, you should have gotten a copy of this, and I apologize that I'm not where I can uh, put this up on, on, on the computer. But I'm going to hold this sort of up that you can see. It's called the League of Women Voters of Kentucky, Kentucky Voting Basics, and you can find this on the state website. And what's critical about this is we put out this two page document that, and feel free, once you see it, you can uh, print it, you, there's no copyright, you can share it with everybody and please do so. Because we know that since COVID, since 2020, the 2020 election, and obviously last year, we have changes in all of our voting regulations and people need to be aware of these. And so that's why we put out uh, this uh, one page both sides document because people need to understand the changes. Things are, are, are different, slightly different, and they're not like they were in 20 when we had so many days of early voting and everybody could vote by mail. It's not that this time. So you can go to go vote, okay, go vote ky.com and find out all kinds of information and What's also important about going there is to make sure your address is correct. If you've moved, you have to make sure that change is there. You can find out where your voting place is, any and everything that you need to know. You put in your address, your zip code, they can tell you. It doesn't matter where you live in the state. So that's critical. And up and through, up until um, or through um, October the 11th, you could go there to register to vote. So after November the 8th, anybody you run into, meet with any kind of you know, meeting that you have, if you find out anybody's not registered, even after November the 8th, they can go to GoVoteKentucky or GoVoteKY.com and uh, get registered because you can register online and that's critical. Now, one of the issues also is that you have to bring a photo, photo ID. So we have passed that, but there are some exceptions. So it's a Kentucky state government ID, for example, your driver's license, obviously, a US government ID, 
which could be, for example, your passport. If you're in the armed services, that, that ID, but college, university, or any of those kinds of schools who have photo IDs, those are good also. Our local IDs that you have, again, photos. Now, there are still people in our communities all over the state who don't have those kinds of IDs. A lot of people don't drive. A lot of people don't have passports. They don't work someplace where they have a photo ID or go to school. So you can have some other kind of identification card with your picture that may come through who knows who it may have come from. Maybe it was some community organization that did this. And there are groups that do do that. If you've got a social security card, uh, if you've got a food stamp, EBT or SNAP card with your name, if you've got a credit card or debit card with your name, and thank goodness uh, they didn't get go uh, do away with the fact that if there are people at the polls who know you and can swear that you are who you say you are, you can get to vote. But these are critical things that some people still don't know. So share that. Then what about voting? Obviously, you can vote on election day. But now we also have three early voting days. So bear with me. Look at your calendar. In other words, go backwards. The Saturday, the Friday, and the Thursday before election day. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday before election day is early voting, no excuse. Okay? Early voting, no excuse, those three days. Uh, we had pushed for Sunday too, but we didn't get that. Then starting the Wednesday before that Thursday, so again, you have to sort of look at your calendar and go backwards. Starting then, you have six days, six business days, okay, of early voting with an excuse. And that is a part, those, those days are apart from your getting an absentee ballot which you can apply for online. So for three days of that week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before the election, okay, and Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of the week even before that, which is next week, okay, you can vote with an excuse. And actually, I'm voting next week with an excuse. I'm going to go on Wednesday, so if there's any kind of problem, I've got, I've got Thursday and Friday to still be able to vote, okay? And then there's that, the, the absentee that we're talking about, uh, is really the excuse voting uh, by mail that you can do. And all of that is on this sheet. So those are critical things that we need to make sure that people know about. And again, as I said, you can copy this, share that with everybody. I've sent it to all of my email contacts. Give it, we've given it out in all of the places where we've registered people. We've given it out at all of the forums. We've given it out at all the meetings that we've had. People have, uh, you know, we, we actually went to some farmer's market and gave it out so people understand uh, what's happening. So that's all part of the whole issue of talking about state voting. Now, to me, one of the critical things about voting is if we want even easier voting in Kentucky, Okay, if we want to make it easy to vote, whether that's same day registration, extending how long it is before that you can uh, register, not having it that 28 days before, if we want more days that you can vote early without an excuse, all of those things are going to depend upon who we elect to office. And, and so one of the things that I've tried to explain to people as I've gone all over the state and talked to people all over is what happened, and I'm, I'm just talking about the state now, what happens in Frankfurt? And I think, Jim, you know, you probably heard me say this before when I talked about redistricting. 
And that is what happens in Frankfurt does not stay in Frankfurt. That affects all of us because the laws that are passed in Frankfurt by the people that are elected affect education, taxes, poverty, tourism, our parks, regulations, our highways, our police, locally, state, you know, economic development, you name it, everything, even even such things like probate, okay, Uh, custody, all the things involving family law, all the things involving criminal law, those are all, those laws are made in Frankfurt and affect all of us and our families and our children and will affect our grandchildren. So that's part of why well, in addition to all the other thousands of reasons why voting is so critical. Because when you hear people say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't affect me. Well, guess what? It really does affect you. And of course, we know when people are affected by it, they go, oh, and they really get upset. And that's when we are tempted to say, well, you didn't vote, so you can't complain. But you know what? Uh, We've decided that's not really a good position probably to take. What we really need to do is to educate people and talk with people all along about the importance of voting. And that's really, really so critical. What's interesting is voting isn't mentioned very much in the federal constitution, not looking at the amendments, but just the original uh, constitution, other than the fact that we know two outstanding things at the beginning. And this is where the history of voting is critical for people to understand. At first, we know only white men who own property could vote. That gradually changed to white men, whether they own property or not. And then of course, we know what happened after the Civil War, we have that black, and it turned out it was black men would get the right to vote. They didn't have to own property. But also what we know is they didn't really get the right to vote because what we know is uh, the South and even other places did everything they could to restrict that. And of course we have the Jim Crow laws that lasted up through the 60s. And now we have, some of you may have read the book, The New Jim Crow Laws, which are the ways to try to keep people of color from voting. Uh, So again, that's part of our history. But our state constitution and our state laws obviously have a lot to do with voting. Now, a little bit later, I'll talk about what's going on with the federal government in voting, and and we can, you, you may have questions about that. But I'd like to move on to redistricting and gerrymandering, which is, Jim listed it as gerrymandering. And it's sort of going to give you an update Two things. One, we talked all over the state for the last several years about redistricting. Some of you know that the outcome was horrible as to what went on in Frankfurt. And one of the things that the State League has committed itself to do is to work on redistricting for the next eight years. In other words, the census in in 2030 will affect redistricting again, and we have committed ourselves to working on it all of those eight years. And that's related to voting. I mean, redistricting is a voting issue. Who do we put in office that are going to make these decisions that have to do with how the lines are drawn? Now, you may know that they did a horrible job. They issued the maps that they drew, the House did, the House in Frankfurt, issued their maps the Thursday before the New Year's weekend. Okay, wow, that really gives everybody a lot of time to object to those. And of course, they were going into session then on uh, January the 4th, which they did. The Senate did not issue their maps until January the 4th. And they all pledged and forced and pushed 
that they would have all of those maps voted on by that Saturday, which was the 8th. Now tell me, even though we had been producing our own maps and sending them to them and everybody else and have been talking about it, what could we do from the Thursday of a New Year's weekend through January the 8th to be sure that the public knew how awful these maps were? We, we did everything we could. We issued press releases, we statements, all, all kinds of things. We had issued maps in December. Again, we pointed out all the discrepancies and issues in, in the maps that they put forth as best we could, but we're talking about basically barely a week and only four days that they were in session, all right? So what, what has happened with that? Well, the Senate, the map for the Senate, the state Senate is in effect and uh, was not in any way challenged after it was put into effect, okay? The House map and the congressional map, which they voted on, is part of a lawsuit that is still ongoing that's in Franklin Circuit Court. The expectation would be, hopefully, that there would be some sort of decision uh, before the election, but I, I, my bet is it's going to come after the election. What was done is, though, that the new maps were put into place for this election cycle. If in any way they are changed based upon this lawsuit, that would affect then the next election uh, cycle for the House and the Senate, which would be in two years, not, not next year, but in two years. And we just don't know uh, how that, that's going to happen. Okay, so that's the two things that are going on. We've committed ourselves to still work on this. And obviously, there's this lawsuit uh, that's out there. And what's going to happen with it, uh, again, we don't know. There have been some rumors. I'm not going to share those because I don't want anybody, anybody's hopes up or feels too negative about what may or may not happen. But again, redistricting is a voting issue. And some of you may know one of the, th one of the things that I always tried to do when I talked about redistricting was to use the word gerrymandering because that gets everybody's attention because everybody feels like, well, they know what gerrymandering is. And of course, what gerrymandering is at its basic level is bad, terrible, evil redistricting. Um, and of course, the congressional map, uh, which people can easily look at that they drew, is a poster child for gerrymandering. It pushes that you know district all the way from the uh, Mississippi River in the West, all the way up to Franklin County. Uh, and it was quite obvious that that was done to protect represent U.S. Representative Comer. That's his district. Even though he supposedly still has a home and farm down in Monroe County, down by the Tennessee border, he's living in Frankfurt. His children are going to school in Frankfurt. He goes to church in Frankfurt. Also, they did not want Frankfurt, which is really tends to be more blue or purple, didn't want it connected to the sixth district over where Andy Barr is in Lexington because that affects his voting. And so they took it out. And the real strange thing is you go through three or four districts before you can even get from Louisville to Frankfurt, uh, which is just ridiculous just on its face. So we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens with that court lawsuit. And then we have to pay attention the next eight years. Who do we elect to these offices? because there'll be another round come 2030 after the, uh, the census. All right, also on my list are two topics for which again, we can devote hours to, uh, which are the two constitutional amendments. 
So let me uh, start with constitutional amendment number one. Those of you who've looked at a sample ballot or read about it in the paper know that it's very long. It includes many, many, many words and references to this statute, that statute, that chapter. The question will be, do people, have people read it ahead of time? Will they read it when they get there? You're only supposed to have about two minutes when you're voting. I mean, you can't even get through it and halfway understand it in two minutes. So what, what's it about? And let me tell you, this is sort of background. The league had not taken a position or stand on Amendment 1 until this past Monday. And part of that came about for really two reasons, uh, because of the research and sort of looking at it that we needed to do, as well as we have been focusing, uh, you can imagine, so much of our attention on Amendment 2, which we immediately took a position on both from national down through the local leagues, um, as soon as Dobbs, uh, the Supreme Court ca case, which overruled Roe v. Wade, took effect, uh, that's been our you know, primary focus. But we have now taken a position against one. And it's for these reasons. As uh, John Schaff, who was on a, a, a platform with me last Tuesday at Together Frankfurt, and then also spoke to our league this past Monday, uh, he's a former counsel for the LRC, former counsel for the Legislative Ethics Commission, as well as the executive director of the Ethics Commission. As he says, the legislators will say, oh, this is just about anti-masking and vaccine issues, you know, all those things the governor did that they didn't like in 2020. His position, and now our position, is, is this is really about power and money. And it's what I would just call it in its basis sense is uh, a legislative power grab uh, that also includes uh, money. So what most people have focused on is, oh, it's just going to give the legislature the ability to call themselves into session, not just the governor, which is what the Constitution provides now, and they're only going to meet for 12 days. But as John pointed out, instead of the whole legislature deciding to call themselves into session, it's just up to two people the president of the Senate and the speaker of the house. So that means just two people in the state of Kentucky, yes, who are elected from just small areas. It's not like the governor who's elected over the entire state can call the legislature into session. Now you think, oh, just 12 days. Well, we know they have 60 every other year, 30 every other year. That's just additional 12 days in a year. What could happen? Well, what we know is because they put the end date as December 31st, they can drag those 12 days out over the entire year. Now, what are the ramifications of that? There's lots of them. First off, for all of us who are nonprofits and just the public, it's hard enough to plan to get to Frankfurt during those 60 days and those 30 days and try to get the legislator's attention uh, about the things that we support or don't support. So imagine if they can drag those additional 12 days out over the year, what are we going to do? So what this means is we see it as two things. One, businesses are going to still be in there 24-7. And the 700 paid lobbyists that we have in Kentucky, they're going to be there 24-7 all year round. And then we think that it's going to affect the ability of who can run for office. There'll probably be a lot more lawyers. And as Jim said, I'm a retired lawyer. I understand this 
but generally lawyers, uh, depending on who they work for, but if they work for themselves, their schedules are flexible. So they can work around not only the 30, 60 days, but all throughout the year. And then businesses, because businesses have different people who can help run their business while they go to Frankfurt or do what they need uh, to do. So it's going to change, we feel, the makeup of the legislature to be less receptive, receptive to the general public, to everybody, to regular citizens. You won't find farmers and teachers and firefighters and police officers and other people who you know, work for businesses and can't take off uh, being able to run uh, for the legislature. Then what is sort of hidden in this, because you have to make all these references to these prior statues, now under the constitution, uh, the legislature cannot give themselves a pay raise while they're, they are in session. If they initiate and pass a pay raise, it doesn't take place until the ne next session. Okay, but what this does is allow them to do that pay raise while they are in session. And then going back to the 12 days to one of the things that can happen is, you know, they can kind of delay controversial things until there's, you know, maybe they just come back into session to deal one day with something that's controversial. So again, for us, it's a transparency issue too, for the ability for the public to really see what's going on. So again, I think we're, we're late to this, but we really do have to get the word out all over the state. This is not, this is not a good constitutional amendment. I'm hoping that the no's are easy. The no's will bleed from amendment uh, two, which we feel pretty strongly about, and that there's a lot of opposition to, will bleed over into one. But believe me, you need to let everybody you know, family, friends, colleagues, your email contacts all over the state not just Louisville and Lexington, um, and know uh, that this amendment should go down uh, also. It took three-fifths of the legislature to put it on the ballot, but it only takes 51% for it to pass. Uh, so keep that in mind um, also. All right, the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is easy in some ways because it's short with what it says. Basically, there won't be any uh, abortion uh, and no funds. Uh, basically, with some minor, minor, minor exceptions, there are no state funds and federal funds that are going toward abortions um, anyway. But what's really critical, and it, it, in some ways this um, goes back to um, what I didn't talk about in, in uh, Amendment 1, you know, we really need to make sure that our checks and balances and separation of powers part of our democratic system really stays strong and firm. So what Amendment 2 does is it takes away from the courts the right to look at any laws regulating abortion or reproductive rights, okay, takes, they can't review it. So what does this mean? Right now, there is a case before our Supreme Court of Kentucky, the one that started in Jefferson County, where our local judge actually issued an injunction stopping the trigger law, which is the comprehensive anti-abortion, anti-reproductive law that the legislature passed last year that would go into effect if the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, which happened. Um, so it went into effect, but the court in Jefferson County issued an injunction saying it violated the Kentucky Constitution for a lot of different reasons. 
And I would suggest if you're really interested, you can go online and find his decision because it refers to the Kentucky Constitution and the rights that we have in the Constitution, uh, basically to privacy and freedom and liberty of our bodies and all of that. But Cameron, the AG and the state uh, went to the Court of Appeals to try to get that changed. And the Court of Appeals judge stopped the injunction. And of course, then that case was fast-tracked to the Supreme Court of Kentucky. Well, with the amendment on the ballot, it would have been heard by the Supreme Court sooner, but with the amendment on the ballot, the court put the hearing off to, I think the actual date is November 8, 9, 10, 11th, which is the Friday after the election, because if the amendment passes, okay, then basically the trigger law lawsuit, I mean, it goes away and the trigger laws in effect, and we're done for. We're done for until the legislature might change and a new amendment would be put back on the ballot that would give that right back. So you can see uh, sort of the blocks that follow uh, fall down if, you know, if this amendment is not defeated. So obviously we're not gonna know to the eighth as to what happens and we're not gonna go to the 11th. Let's say um, the, the amendment goes down is defeated, the no's are 51%, then the Supreme Court would have this hearing to review whether in fact the trigger law, which again, I would suggest you read about it. It has lots of extremes. I'll mention just a few in a moment, but then the Supreme Court will review whether this trigger law in fact is unconstitutional under the present constitution of Kentucky. Um, and so, Let's face it, there's a lot up in the air. I think, you know, and I've spoken to a lot of groups about Amendment 2, including my own church. I think it's critical, and you may be able to help people understand, you don't have to give up your religion, your beliefs to be against this amendment. I consider myself both pro-life and pro-choice. But again, those are my decisions. You know, I don't, uh, my church does not, specifically my church is pro-choice, but does not believe, for example, that abortion should be used as a contraceptive. And I don't think that either. But I also know and accept that my faith is my faith and my decision and my family's decision and my family's decision with their doctors and their ministers or whoever it might be. In other words, in that, with that council, not anybody who was elected to Frankfurt to come and interject themselves into that decision-making. You know, that's my right. Now, if somebody over here in their religion believes, okay, there shouldn't be abortion, I'm fine with that, okay? That's their belief, they're entitled to their, that, their belief. But what I do not believe in and do not believe the Kentucky Constitution should do, or Kentucky laws should do, should take that belief, okay, and impose it upon everybody else. And you might know that just like in Florida, some Jewish women here in Jefferson County have filed suit against the trigger law. Also, uh, because of their religious beliefs. Um, and the real issue in many ways is these are minority extreme positions that want to push and put their positions and their beliefs over all the rest of us. And even to the point where, for example, in the trigger law, a fertilized egg is a human being. Okay. Uh, I mean, even the medical profession and doctors, they talk about, you know, the, well, they can talk about a fetus, but that's not a baby. It's a fetus. There's all those differences. And of course, they did this not 
thinking in any way at all are really, cons really consulting with doctors about how this affects pregnancy, regardless of whether somebody wants a baby or doesn't want a baby based on whatever all the circumstances are. Really, no attention to any of that detail. And they've said, well, you know, if the mother's health is really, really, and life is at stake or some danger to an organ, we know just, I mean, practically speaking, we as non-medical people know that the time frame for making those decisions can be seconds. So who do we want to make that decision? Do we want the doctor and the people involved to make that decision? Or do we want someone out of Frankfurt to make that decision? We want some you know, person who's gonna to try to come and ultimately possibly do what they've done in Texas, which we of course know is set it, set it up as a vigilante circumstance. So now we have people who maybe have to have an abortion because of some issues in their pregnancy. Do we want citizens to come in and say, oh, well, th this person's having an abortion. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with health or medical, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously we can all go nuts thinking about all of the, of the issues and the decision-making that these people are trying to take away from doctors and us personally. You know, it's not gonna affect me in a personal sense, except for the fact it affects my daughter, uh, it affects my grandchildren, it affects people within my family going forward. So, like I said, there's you know 50,000 reasons to vote against this amendment. And I've hardly mentioned very many of them uh, at all. But the overreach, the extremism of this is just mind boggling, just absolutely mind boggling. Uh, you can actually, should be, maybe even be able to go online. Uh, Dr. Karen Berg, who is a Senator from Northeastern Jefferson County, gave an impassioned uh, speech in the legislature when they were about to pass this. And she's a doctor and she knows all of those details. And it, it's something to really, to listen to, to understand. And again, I think it's a matter of saying, that's fine if you want to believe no abortion, but don't, you can't put your, that belief, that's a religious belief. It's, you know, a, 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 on me uh, and my family and uh, us individually. So that, you know, again, I could talk about that, obviously, uh, forever. And again, they're taking power away from the courts to be able to review these reproductive laws, rights laws, and, and abortion laws. And, and basically, we, we won't have to, we can't go forward uh, at all until the legislature changes. And we have another amendment, again. And you can, you know, the amendments, only so many can be on uh, every other election year. So, you know, we're talking about a difficult, difficult situation. All right, just voting in general. And uh, one of uh, Jim's topics was about governors and secretaries of state. Our secretary of state, all things considered, regardless of the fact that we would have liked a more expansion of the days for voting. And for example, having it from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., those kinds of things. Our secretary of state has not been, even though he is a Republican, like 99% of the Republican secretaries of state in other states and those running for secretary of state's offices. And for that, we should be thankful. He's even spoken out against some of these Liberty Party, uh, which is kind of a, they're kind of leftover Tea Party people who have uh, challenged their 
uh, elections, about six or seven of them ran uh, in the primary, some defeated but by like, you know, 80 percent, uh, some a little closer, but challenging, uh, you know, the, the election uh, results. Uh, he has called um, uh, many of them uh, out. So in that sense, uh, we have been lucky. But again, uh, and he's apparently going to run for secretary of state again, not some other office. So there is some comfort uh, in that. But again, what happens in the legislature next year, okay, or the year after, you know, regardless of who wins or doesn't win for the, for the House and the, and the State Senate, the Republicans are still going to be in control. And will some of those dark, dark issues in regards to voting, which have come from we know from the, uh, in relation to the courts and the abortion amendments have come from outside the state. Is that gonna affect uh, the legislature and what it does in regards uh, to voting? And, and let me back up a little, and this is really important. You might've seen there've been some good articles in the paper and there was um, uh, a new one in the, I believe it was in the Kentucky Gazette, which is Northern Kentucky and you can go online and see it. And there's been some reporting in the CJ about this. Uh, outside groups pouring money into two, well, actually three particular judicial races. Our judicial races are nonpartisan. You may have heard about the controversy involving uh, the Supreme Court District 6, which is not us, uh, Supreme Court District 6, where a very, very, very conservative uh, Republican is challenging just, just Michelle Keller uh, his name is Joe Fisher, and he uh, actually uh, was the one that put forth the trigger law, as well as the laws about what teachers can teach. The league has tried to work with him very unsuccessfully. He's not very approachable, very, very conservative, and he's been running a very, very awful, a very not nonpartisan campaign. A few years ago, judicial candidates were able, if asked, to say what party they belong to, but basically he's touting himself in conjunction with lots of Republicans in his area, as well as the state uh, le Republican leaders as a conservative Republican, all kinds of things. He's been challenged with uh, at, at the Judicial Retirement Commission, uh, Judicial Ethics Commission involving, you know, those, uh, those partisanship, non-partisanship races. Uh, the outside group is supporting him outside, I'm saying outside the state, supporting, running against, uh, helping with money, running against Judge Phil Shepard in Frankfurt, who is a well-known and very well-respected judge who has ruled both for and against Republicans, for and against Democrats, and Republicans are trying to oust him. And they're also trying to do that down in the district involving Bowling Green. And I don't exactly have those names on, on top of my um, head or, or <laughs> my mouth to tell you about. But again, trying to what I see is a far right takeover of the courts, which they've already done with the Supreme Court, trying to do it locally, statewide, just as attempts to take over school boards in Louisville. We have liberty candidates who have all filed for school board. And there are no primaries. There were no primaries in the school board because they're nonpartisan. So we have four or five candidates in the four district school board district races, uh, which are, are basically those Liberty Party people. A pretty far right. Yes, parent focused, but what I personally see is as a former parent and still as a grandparent, very focused on right wing 
parent issues, not what's good for the entire school system and, school, and good for everybody. So we're talking about challenging books in the library, you know, again, what teachers can teach, ignoring our history. Some of you have heard me say, I taught black history, uh, believe it or not, in the 70s in Paducah, Kentucky. And based upon what they passed, I would be hesitant to say and teach some of the things I did back then based upon these new laws. So anyway, it's where we have to pay attention to all of these races, school board, Metro Council, House, Senate, congressional, obviously the state constitutional uh, officers. So all of those things are uh, important. Now, let me, because I wanna have time for a quick question. So let me just say this, pay attention also to the federal legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act, which the House has passed, but the Senate hasn't. Uh, it would deal with voter registration issues federally, election integrity, redistricting, and campaign finance. Uh, let's face it, the dark money is drowning us all, and that's an issue. And then there's still the, the House passed the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act. That's another one uh, to take care of, of the gutting that the Supreme Court has done, done to the Voting Rights Act. So pay attention to that. Um, I, we probably can write Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell as many times as possible, but we still need to do it. Uh, that the Senate needs to deal with those bills, at least have a hearing on them for God's sake. So anyway, I've talked a lot. You can see I can talk a long time about all these things. I wanna make sure there's enough questions. Uh, Jim, I don't you've monitored that, uh, but you know, please, please, you know, what kind of questions, okay? Okay, thank you. Rodney Streeter and Beverly Marmion will conclude today's third Thursday lunch presentation for Source of Justice and the Global Fellowship of Reconciliation. Rodney, uh, you want to conduct a Q&A session? Sure. Um, basically, uh, Dee, thank you so much. Uh, one of the questions in chat, the people are encouraging people to put things in chat, uh, and one was, could you maybe comment about the uh, power of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, mm -hmm. as it continues to uh, draft bill boilerplate? Uh... Uh, they're active all over the country, and there is no, I mean, they, I consider them far right. There's no, you can say far left or even, you know, let's just talk about the middle, even though I think the middle has moved pretty far right. There, there's no counterpart. Uh, they write legislation. I mean, these legislators, you know, I mean, they have the LRC people who are nonpartisan to help them. But what they do is they get from ALEC these bills involving, again, what's taught in school and uh, obviously the abortion bills. And, and, and let's face it, they're anti-regulation. Uh, oh, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the issues uh, from Amendment 1-2 that's been pointed out to us is it will give the legislature the ability, right now they can't veto regulations that the executive branch sets up. They can review them, but they can't um, veto them. But what it's going to do is, because they'll be meeting all year, off and on all year, they want to micromanage the executive branch and regulations because of all of their both constituents and paid lobbyists whose clients don't like regulations. You know oh, have clean water? Well, no, no, we don't need clean water. You know, uh, do something about all the mines, do something about the flooding. No, 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 no. And that's part of what ALEC is doing too. It's very anti-regulation. So they give these, um, you know, they give these uh, bills written out. They've done it all over the country. 
And the only counterpart is the National Conference of State Legislators, which is nonpartisan. And um, a couple of us from the league have attended their conference on redistricting, where it's a much more even, for example, at that conference we attended, it was very much have an open process, bring the public in to, to you know, push for uh, having advisory commissions or independent commissions. But no, from ALEC, it's all anti-regulations, anti you name it, you know, anti, they say, oh, it's free speech. No, it's not free speech. Um, so yes, they are very active and they are in um, contact with leadership in both the House and the Senate and the individual uh, legislators. One of the things I am so conscious of is what I would call the slow motion coup happening when you have uh, election deniers being put uh, in charge of secretaries of state. And maybe talk about how fraught this time is in terms of the uh, challenge to democracy. Okay. Well, I would tell you uh, sort of two parts of that. I I sent uh, a historian and a general in the army. And uh, when I was moaning and groaning recently, he said, well, keep in mind, we did make it through the Civil War. I mean, he was trying to help me be a little more positive. We did make it through the Civil War. We survived. I would tell you that I, though, still think, uh, and, and let's face it, too, somebody pointed this out recently. You know, in the 60s, uh, cities were on fire. You know, people, students were killed at Kent State. I mean, you know, there were riots all over. So it, it was an awful time. To me, the difference here is that people who want to have power are going through the channels again to get elected to have power. And then in that process um, to take away the rights of a lot of people. I mean, you know, the, the problem with the, with the reversal of Roe v. Wade is this is the first time in the history of our country that they have taken away a right. And one of the things I said the other night is, okay, so Plessy versus Ferguson said there could be separate but equal. But Brown versus Board of Education said no. So it gave people the right that, that you know, separate but equal was not acceptable. Are we going to take that away? So the problem is the foundation, which is our election systems and our voting systems and the people in charge of those, that's so critical. So it's sort of like, you know, think about it as a foundation. And it's not just that the termites are up in your attic, but it's like the termites are down in the ground and the foundation and working their way up to meet all the termites that are up in your attic. Uh, so to me, that's the, that's the real danger. And, and the biggest concern is, okay, November the 8th, sometimes we don't know a lot of uh, decisions, voting decisions until afterwards because of the way different states count ballots. We can start counting, in Kentucky, we can start counting our absentee ballots before election day. They're not publicized, but they can be counted. Some states, they can't count them until six or seven o'clock at night at the end of election day, okay? So is there gonna be this just huge number of people, and we know basically who they are, what, that what Trump did, which was is, oh, the election was rigged and I really won, but the, you know, it's all fake, I mean, In that sense, I'm really scared for November the 9th going forward.
Um, that's to me the real fear because this is really foundational. So can I ask a question here and follow up to your concern about the judicial races and PAC money? There was an op-ed article penned by Seth Gladstein yesterday's paper, president of the Liberal Bar Association, member of the yeah, yeah, you read that LBA Judiciary Integrity and Independence Committee, and they are much concerned about the PAC money, political action committee money that's coming into judicial races. One of those PACs are called that they call themselves Fair Courts America Dash Kentucky, end quote, and they have decided that they're going to put up. 1.6 1.6 million dollars to support judicial races. So I'm wondering what your position is on that issue, uh, maybe what the league's position is in terms of PAC money and PACs being able to support judicial races, which should be impartial and should be independent. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's all part of the dark money campaign finance issues, you know, Citizens United that overruled the McCain-Feingold bill. It's just horrible. And I ran for office twice. And in less than three years, it doubled. But the first time I only spent $15,000. So think about that, $15,000. And then you have people, there's, we now have people having to spend, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to get uh, jobs that only pay $125,000. And then because of all of this polarization and the way our politics have gone, again, it is to me, it is a push to take over the courts. If you listen to any of the ads that you hear from people all over the country, it's the leftist judges, the leftist courts. Thank God we have the courts as somewhat of a last resort against legislators, our leaders. Thank goodness we had the courts that with what one exception turned away all the lawsuits that Trump and, and all those people filed. Thank goodness, you know, that, that the judicial system in that sense held. But, you know, getting a different judge here and there, I mean, for example, the Court of Appeals is at, at least those are three judge panels. So there's three judges. It's not just what one judge can do. That's good. But if all three judges are two of them change, and then the Supreme Court of, of Kentucky is seven, if one of those changes, now that might, but if, you know, it's the eroding of all of that. And it has to do with money. And of course, they label themselves fair courts. You know what you, what I found you have to do when you hear from people or you get emails, you really have to go try to find out who are these people and where are they from? And because of the dark money and the fact that nonprofits can set up these things and don't have to disclose who's giving the money. I mean, that's outrageous. You might've seen recently that something like, and I'll try to remember and find this in this to like eight billionaires, eight billionaires in the United States are having a huge effect on all of our elections because of the money they are giving. Peter Thiel is just one of them. We know what Sheldon Adelson has done in the past. I mean, and these guys make the uh, boogeyman on the left is, of course, George Soros. They make him look like a piker in the sense of all of the money. And so it has to do with money. And courts are, in many ways, the last bastion that they want to go after. And of course, locally, though, uh, you might have heard even the the infamous Steve Bannon talk about, we're going to get you locally. So that's school boards, Metro Council, the mayor's race, you know, and then we go to the, the legislature, the House and the Senate. So it is endless. Again, to me, these are these are the termites at the very bottom that are want to meet the ones at the top. Thank you. 
Thank you. And uh, Beverly will bring us up to date on what's coming up. And thank you all very much. I appreciate this time. I want to piggyback, first of all, on what Dee has mentioned about our school board elections. If you're like me, you may not be aware of which particular district you live in in terms of the school board races because only four out of the eight regions are going to get to choose new school board representatives. So let me point you to where you can find out whether you can vote or not in the school board. And if that's to go to the to the FOR's website, which is louisvillefor.org. And at the very top of our homepage, highlighted in yellow, you're going to see our questionnaire to the candidates in terms of their views on different issues concerning education in Jefferson County. It will link you, you click on the link to the JCPS website in order to get more information and in order to scroll down, it's not immediately apparent on the uh, opening page of, of JCPS, but you stay on that homepage, just scroll down and you'll see the place where you enter your street address and then find out exactly whether or not you are in one of those voting sections or whether your region is not holding a vote this year. Thank you, Dee, so much. I was following my own <laughs> search for whether or not I could vote or not, and that is what led me to think that perhaps this happened to all the rest of you. Now, I want to talk about our program for November, four weeks from today. In the past, in Louisville for decades, we have been deeply concerned about injustices in Central and furthermore Latin America, many of them brought on by support by our U.S. government of uh, political leaders who were not humanitarian in their efforts and who we tried to, through Monroe Doctrine attitudes, to control what was going on south of our border. But what today we are concerned about is people not simply from Central and Latin America coming to that southern border, but people from Ukraine, from Venezuela, from Haiti, who are desperate to get to a safer place than where they live. So we are going to the border, but we are not literally going to the border because literally the border is coming to us in terms of to humanitarians who are active along the Arizona-Mexico border. We are going to hear from Dee Rodriguez, who is, I'm sorry, Dee, her name is Dora. Dora with a D. Dora Rodriguez, who has founded a House of Hope in Mexico, right against the Arizona border, House of Hope, La Casa de la Esperanza in Spanish, to give aid to people who are seeking shelter in the United States, and joined by Bob Key, who works with his group called Arizona Samaritans, who go out into the desert south of Tucson toward the Mexican border to meet immigrants there who are suffering from illness, from thirst, from the effects of dangerous journeys to get into the United States. And they not only meet them, find them dead or alive, but they leave food and water in different places where immigrants are likely to be before they return home to Tucson. Bob Key is also a professional photographer, so our program is going to be illustrated by his photographs. It's going to be fascinating, it's going to be disturbing, and it's going to be up to date. So I hope you'll join us on November 17th. Thanks so much for your interest and your participation here today. I'll see you in November. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. I want to thank Dee Pregliasco for her presentation 
and we want to thank the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation and Source of Justice for their sponsorship of the third Thursday lunch featuring Dee Pregliasco. It has been a pleasure having Dee Pregliasco as our featured guest on Solutions of Violence. Our Solutions of Violence program airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our program featuring Dee Pregliasco airs again October 25th and 26th. The Listen Live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dee Pregliasco will be placed in the WFMP archives October 26, 2022. To listen via our archives, go to forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features TTL and Dee Pregliasco. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise, delight, and challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. I'm Jim Johnson, Jamie McMillan, and I are your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Thanks for listening.